Good try. <laughs> All right. Good morning, everyone. Um, I'm excited to be able to share with you all. I was thinking, I think last year I got to share the Christmas message also. And I was looking back at it. I was like, hey, it's kind of fun. I get to share again this year with you all. Um, before I get into it, I uh, wanted to give you a little bit of an update from la- not this last week, the week before last. I was able to go t- on a mission trip to India for the week. And um, it was a really neat time. Uh, the, the well sponsored me a little bit to go. So I thought it'd be cool to give you guys just a, a brief update. Uh, it was quite an experience uh, to go there. I never slept on a plywood bed before. Uh, that was a first. Uh, it's not very comfortable. Not too many good nights of sleep, sleeping on a, a hard wooden bed. But uh, we were out in the kind of rural area of northeast India, and uh, we went out to train some churches. There's a church planning movement that's going on in that area of the world. About 100,000 churches have started in the, probably the last seven years or so. And so God's doing a really a great work, and uh, we went to learn and also to train some of the traditional churches that are in the villages that have been there for a while to reach more people and share the gospel and start more churches. So we had a group of, I think, eight of us that went from Austin, and we were able to train nine churches during that time. We would spend two days with the church and then take a debrief and then do two more days and debrief. And, and um, so we trained nine churches, and um, basically kind of on the four fields, some of you might be familiar, who do you share with, how do you share the gospel, how do you disciple new believers, and how do you start new churches? And after the first day we'd share, we'd send them out to go share, and they would maybe have an hour or so to share, and then they'd come back and report what God did. And so during that time, 439 people got to hear the gospel, and uh, 273 people accepted Christ. So we praise God for that, huh? Yeah. It was really amazing, uh, and just to see what, that the harvest is plentiful, people are ready to come to know Christ if people are willing to share with them. Uh, the one church that, first church that we trained uh, that night, I got to go out and share with them, and we got to share with a few families, and they, they accepted Christ. But these families wouldn't allow the people to share with them previously. Uh, they were all Hindu families, and, uh, but since there was a foreigner with them, they were willing to listen. So we got to share with them and uh, present the gospel, and then our interpreter would explain and make sure they really understood it, and they wanted to accept Christ and begin to follow him. So we were excited about that, but then I was a little bit worried, like, well, maybe they just did this because I was this American foreigner. So, but when we came back to report out, everybody who went out that day led people to Christ. And just in our little, uh, our little group of, maybe these churches are small, maybe 25 or 30 people we were training, um, there was 100 people who accepted Christ just in that little group of people in that little village. So pretty amazing uh, what God is doing there. Um, so anyways, it's fun. I've been on jet lag coming back. I've brought some friends with me that live in my stomach too, so uh, trying to deal with that as well. But I'm getting better. So India is an interesting place. Uh, don't expect to go there and come back without some illness. So... Um, Anyways, let me pray, and then we'll jump into uh, the text for this morning. Uh, Heavenly Father, we thank you for what you're doing all around the world, and truly you are a great God and is moving amongst the nations, and it's not things that we see or hear about on TV where there's um, hundreds of thousands of churches started. That's just in one little part of India, and that's happening in many places in India, Lord that you are uh, spreading, you are subversively moving, and your kingdom is growing across the whole world. 
uh, as we speak uh, today. We thank you for that. We thank you that we can gather to read your word and learn more about you, <clears throat> more about who, <clears throat> who Jesus is for our lives. And so we pray you be here and bless it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I'm going to read with you from um, Matthew. So it's the last part of this series that we're doing. Um, and it's starting in Matthew um, chapter 2, verse 13. It's going to kind of go from what Tori talked about last week. So if you have a Bible, you can open it to that. Um, we also have this on the, the version or Bible app on your phones. You can type in the Well Austin and it'll, the, these verses will come up. Uh, they'll be on the screen as well. And there's also Bibles under the chairs if you'd like to look it up in that. And if you don't have a Bible, you can keep those Bibles too. They're for you if you're new and would like to have a Bible. Let me read through this, and then I'll go back through it and kind of explain some things and unpack some of it. In verse 13, it says, Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, and he said, Rise and take the child, this is Jesus, and his mother, and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he arose, and he took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt. And remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, he became furious. And then he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem. And in all that region who were two years old and under. According to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation. Rachel's weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise and take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life are dead. And he arose, and he took the child and his mother, and they went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father, Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in the dream, he withdrew to a district of Galilee. And he went and lived in the city called Nazareth, um, that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, he shall be called a Nazarene. And that is the word of God. So this passage is, happens right after the birth of Jesus. And we can see from the beginning of the passage in verse 13 that there's a conflict that's occurring, right? So there's this king that's born, and this king is not of a worldly kingdom. He's the, from God. He's from the kingdom of God. And then there's this worldly kingdom uh, that's in this area of the world was being run by Herod. He was Herod the Great. And Herod goes after Jesus, right? He hears about Jesus. Maybe in some way he's feeling threatened by Jesus. His kingdom he's feeling is threatened by this little baby, right? It's kind of foolish and ridiculous. But he's threatened by him and he says, we've got to get him, go get him. We've got to destroy him. We've got to kill him. So from the onset of Jesus' life, there's a conflict. And this conflict really is a conflict of kingdoms. It's a conflict between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of this world. A kingdom of God or the kingdom of man then Jesus even said that actually the kingdom of this world has a prince. He said in John 14 and 30 that the devil is the prince of this world. 
So this world has a, a kingdom and it has a prince, and even Jesus was confronted at one time with this devil when he was in the wilderness for 40 days, and at the end of 40 days he was fasting, and then this guy approaches Jesus, and he says to Jesus, he showed Jesus all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time, and he says to him, if I will give you authority and glory over all these kingdoms, if you will just worship me, for these have been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will, it'll be yours if you worship me. But Jesus, of course, didn't worship that, that uh, entity. He said, you worship the Lord your God alone. He didn't say that, no, uh, uh, Satan, you don't have an authority over the world. He just said, no, you're supposed to worship God. Because actually, there was, is an authority over this world. It is some type of spiritual demonic authority. And they're in conflict with each other. You know, it, one hates the kingdom of God. And you can see from the onset of Jesus' life, it tries to get him, it tries to attack him, tries to destroy him because it wants this king to die so that the kingdom of the world can keep thriving. This, this war goes back, you know, for a long time. Before the beginning of time, this war, this conflict is going on. If we flip ahead to Revelation chapter 12, it will tell us a little bit more about the conflict that is going on in a greater... Um, that kind of give us a larger perspective on what kind of conflict is going on. There's some strange imagery in here. I'm not going to go into all of it, but I just want to give us a picture of the conflict. Revelation 12, verse 1, it said, A great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and with the moon under her feet, and her head a crown of 12 stars. Many think that this is representative of Israel. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and in agony of, a grieving, of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and on the heads seven diadems. And his tail swept down a third of the stars of the heaven and he cast them to earth. This is a powerful entity. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that he may that, he, that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she was in a place prepared by God in which she would be nourished for 1,260 days. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, the ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers have been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows that his time is short. This is a great conflict going on, right? 
The scripture tells us that this conflict is massive, it's great, it's been going on since the beginning, beginning of time. There's some type of wild war in heaven, and it's in, in some way that this, this, this creature, this, this entity, this Satan has been cast down to the earth and is roaming the earth, and he tried to devour the son when he was born, but the son was caught up to God to rule with God and God's kingdom. And yet this, this entity is living and is dwelling and is wreaking havoc on the earth right now because he knows his time is short. And this has been going on since the beginning of the Bible, right? And we know it's going on all, through the, all throughout the Bible. We all go all the way back to Genesis. We see that, you know, God created Adam and Eve and he created it all good and he created them to bear his image and to reflect his glory in the world. And yet what happens in the garden? There's this serpent that comes, right? There's this conflict that occurs where they're, they're, they're lied to, they're deceived, and they're tricked into eating the fruit, disobeying God. And what happens? Well, they, they're given the consequence of death. God says, if you eat the fruit, you surely will die. So death comes into the world. A condemnation comes into the world. The devil laughs and points and says, now you're accused before God. He's the accuser of all men. See what you've done. See God, now you have to judge them. Your creation that you love now is under your condemnation. I get to be the ruler of this world. And from that point on, he's been ruling. He's been creating his dominion over the earth. Since that point on, he was ruling the earth. But God had a plan, not that we would be under the authority of a satanic rule and dominion for all of eternity, but we would be under his authority and his rule. So he was working a way to bring us back out of it, to save us out of this great, dark kingdom that was over the face of the earth. So he began to work his plan. It began to play out, right? And, and in the first deliverance, we see that he's working through these people, the Israelites, through this guy Abraham, and, and these people begin to develop into a nation, but then they become slaves to this bigger kingdom, this kingdom of Egypt, and they get taken over by it and become slaves to it. But God has a plan to pull them out of this kingdom through Moses. And he's going to pull them out of the kingdom of the world, and he's going to start to establish his own people and his own kingdom, and he's going to be their king, and he's going to rule them with justice and righteousness and his laws. And there's all these things going on in the world and different kinds of kingdoms that are being established and coming and going, but God says, I'm going to pull my little teeny group of people and I'm going to establish them. But something funny happens during that process. The people kind of start to say, you know what, we kind of like you, God, but we kind of don't. We kind of want to be like the other kingdoms of the world. And actually, we don't really want you to be our king. We want a king. So they say, we want a king, and, and God says to them, if you get a king, this is what's going to happen to you. You're gonna, your sons and daughters are going to become slaves. That king's going to take your money. He's going to take your land. He's going to make your sons into soldiers. And they say, who cares? We want it. We want it. He says, all right, I'll give you a king. He gives him Saul. He gives him Saul. And Saul has all kinds of problems, and, and Israel has all kinds of problems. They have one really good king, which is King David, which comes after Saul. They have some other good kings in there too. But in the majority of, of, of Israel's history is problematic. The kingdom actually divides into two. Over time, it gets worse and worse. They want to become like the other kingdoms so bad that they forget God's laws. They pursue other ways of living. And in the end, God says, okay, fine, you can have it. I'm going to give you what you want. You can be a part of the other kingdoms. And so Egypt was not, no longer the great power that time. Now it was Babylon. And I think I have a picture of it. 
Babylon was the power, and Assyria and Babylon, they came in and they just wiped out Israel, and they assimilated the people into the Babylonian Empire, and they ruled that area of uh, the world. As you can see, the middle part is the, is the Babylonian Empire, Egypt's down south, and then the, the Medes and Persians are up north. So these are massive kingdoms that are, that, are, that are going on, right? And Israel was just this little teeny kingdom. But they didn't want God's way, so God allowed them to be assimilated into this, into this other uh, kingdom, Babylon, and they got wiped out. The temple was wiped out, everything. Jerusalem was destroyed. It was a mess. But God still had a, a plan, even though the kingdoms of the world seemed to be winning. Seemed to be winning, right? After, after Babylon came uh, the Persia, Persian Empire. You can see the next. Uh, this is a massive empire. A massive empire. Huge. Um, Cyrus is the king. Cyrus the Great. Actually, he was the first king that was called the King of Kings. Really interesting. He's a really interesting story. But he's in the Bible too. Cyrus was in some ways kind of did some neat and good things. Um, but he also was pretty ruthless too in what he did and how he conquered. But he allowed the Jewish people to go back and kind of start to form as a uh, people again. Not to be the kind of their own nation, but at least to be a people again. He did some good. And then there was uh, Darius the Great or Darius the Great, however you say that. He's in the Bible too. He was, a, he was a pretty good king. He ruled over that kingdom. But then they started getting weak in different ways. And so who comes up from the, <clears throat> from the uh, west? But you can see the next slide. Alexander the Great. He sweeps in, right? And just, man, those guys are brutal. He's brutal. Taken over this, this area over a period of time, and the, these, these kingdoms, they don't reign with uh, uh, gentleness. They're violent. They're oppressive, worldly kingdoms. They lust for power. They, they, they live for fame and fortune. They conquer through force and violence. They're unjust. They're boastful, and they seek to preserve themselves and themselves alone. So these massive powers are going on. At the same time, you know, those, those, those little Jews are in, in that area. And, uh, but they're not a kingdom still. So the kingdoms of the world are reigning. And after this kingdom comes another kingdom, which is the kingdom of, of Rome. We've got the Caesars, and then we've got Augustus, which was kind of like the emperor. And he was almost like a god to the people. And this was kind of what was going on during Jesus' time. This great, powerful kingdom was ruling the world, and the Israelites are hoping and longing that someday their kingdom would be reestablished, that they could have a kingdom again, and that they could have a king that would come and, and, and reestablish them and make them into a power again, kind of like the power of, of when David was reigning, and they had a powerhouse then, even though they still were a little kingdom. But they want their kingdom to come again, and they want to be established again, and they want their king to rule over the world and oppress everyone else so that they can be the final and the, the powerful kingdom. So they're waiting for that. They're in this period of oppression. Of course, there have been many more kingdoms, not just those kingdoms in the world. And they're all the same, the earthly kingdoms. This kingdom had Herod at that time, right? He wasn't a good guy. They call him Herod the Great. He did some great things. He built, rebuilt the temple in an amazing way. They call him great because he did some things that benefited the area and some of the Jews liked him. But he also did some really bad things, right? Killed a bunch of his sons. It's one of his wives. I think he had 10 wives. Killed one of his wives. His mother-in-law killed her. 
Um, how do you like that? You know, Mom, I don't, I don't like her very much. We're going to get rid of her. He was all into preserving himself, right? So now he's like, okay, there's this other king that's going to be born, this king of the Jews. You know, I mean, who are the Jewish people? They, I mean, at that time, you know, they, they didn't have any power, really. But we're going to go kill him anyways. And so he goes and kills all the kids that are two years under in that area. This is a bad guy. Like, he's a bad dude. And so what does is, what is, uh, Matthew quote? He quotes Jeremiah. This quote from, from a voice is heard in Ramah, weeping a loud lamentation. This is quoted from the time of exile of the Israelites. This is a time of grieving. The unjust empires are ruling, and, and they are grieving and weeping because wickedness is reigning. And they are still in the middle of it, waiting, waiting for their Savior. And yet, here he comes, right? Here he comes on the scene in a way no one would have expected. He comes and lives in a town called Nazareth. It's really interesting. It says that the prophet would be fulfilled that he shall be called a Nazarene. Do you guys know that there is no prophecy in the Old Testament that says he shall be called a Nazarene? There's no exact quote like that. So it's really kind of interesting where they got that from. I read different things about it. And I think what makes sense to me is that this guy, this king, would come from a nowhere place, really. That's kind of what Nazareth was. It was a nobody place. It was a nowhere place. No one important would come out of Nazareth. It was the Hicksville, the hillbillies, the the modern-day deplorables came from Nazareth, right? And so here comes a king from a nowhere place, a nobody place, right? Nathaniel even says in John 1, 46, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Right? This is a, this is a, a place of uh, despicable people. And so what we're seeing here is a contrast in kingdoms. Right? There's a kingdom of the world. It's Herod's kingdom. There's a kingdom of power and might and prestige and wealth and honor and glory where there's lineages and this king came from this kingdom. But then there's this other kind of king that's coming. He comes in from a nowhere place. He comes in, in born in a barn, right? He comes in, in his glory is revealed to shepherds out in the, in the fields that he's coming. Who is this king? He's so different than the other kinds of kings. Even his arrival is completely different and unusual and odd. And yet his arrival gives a sense of a hope in some strange way. Because he's not just seemingly going to be all about these elites and all about this wealthy and all about the powers that be. But maybe his kingdom is something different. Maybe it's going to bring hope to all the people, even the nobodies, even the people from the, Nazar- the Nazareths, even the common illiterate people. This hope is a king... It's of a king who was not only born in a barn, but listen, this king was a refugee, fled to Egypt, right? This king lived in a backwards village and was poor. This king never fought with a sword. This king never commanded armies on earth. This king loved the least. He wandered as a homeless traveler. He was rejected by the powers that be. This king never boasted in himself and said how great he was. Imagine if our presidential candidates acted that way. 
He lived as a servant to those who were in need. He was ultimately killed on a cross by both his religion and the government at that time, completely rejected by all the institutions. And yet we call him king. It doesn't seem so kingly, not in a worldly sense, right? He ruled differently. He was a different king. He was a servant. He was meek. He ruled in humility. He ruled in gentleness. He ruled with kindness. He ruled with forgiveness. He was a selfless king, and he ruled in love. His rule was not through the, the power of the sword, but with the power of love. And in the end, he died on a cross for the sins of the world because he loved the world so that he could purchase us out of the world just like he tried to take Israel out of Egypt. He wants to take us out of the world and bring us into a new kingdom, his kingdom, where the rule is love and not the sword. And he wants to establish a people that follow his way of servanthood and humility and gentleness and kindness and it's a subversive kingdom where it spreads from person to person in the midst of the kingdoms, in the midst of the empires where you don't hear about the news of hundreds of thousands of people coming to know Christ all over the world, but it's happening because this is a subversive movement. And he's calling people into a different way to live. He's a different kind of king. I mean, men and women, can you imagine for a moment with me if Jesus ran for president today, right? Like, like it's almost inconceivable to think of Jesus running for president of a worldly empire. And, and let me tell you, you live in a worldly empire. You may not think so, but we do. Imagine with me just for a minute if we interviewed Jesus. Imagine if I was Tom Brokaw and I was going to interview Jesus as a candidate running for president, okay? Have, have a little fun with me here. Um, hey, good morning or good evening, ladies and gentlemen. I'm Tom Brokoff, and uh, I'm happy to be with you here and to interview Jesus, uh, the candidate to run for president. Jesus, it's good to be here. Uh, they give you the title Jesus of Nazareth. What's that all about? Well, uh, uh, Tom, thank you for having me here. I'm glad to be here with you. Um, <laughs> Na Nazareth is where I'm from. Oh, really? Okay, next question. Jesus, tell us what do you want to do for our country? Right? What are you going to do for this country? You know, everyone's looking at you. You've got something special for the country. What are you going to do for it? Well, Tom, it's interesting. You know, I, I, I only do what my father does, Tom. I only say what my father tells me to say. I don't do anything by myself. Wow, Jesus, that's interesting. I'm so, that's really neat that you have a really close relationship with your father like that. But, you know, you're running for president, not your dad. So tell us a little bit what you're going to do for the country. Tom, I don't think you heard me quite right. I only do what my father tells me to do. You see, the words you hear me speak right now are not my own. They're my father's. All right, Jesus. Let's move on to the next question here. I guess it's two for the price of one with Jesus. How about international relations, Jesus? You know, there's so many problems in the world, and we, we need this world to come together. We need peace in this world. You've been called the Prince of Peace. I've heard that. Tom, tell me, what are you going to do for our world? Well, Tom, I, I, I'm, I bring peace. I do. Anyone who comes to me, I give them peace. But don't suppose I've come to bring peace on earth, Tom. I did not come to bring, bring peace, but a sword. I've come to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemy will be the members of his own household. Okay, Jesus. 
So you're going you're gonna to just conquer. That's what you're going to do. You're going to rule with the sword. I guess that's a different way of going about establishing world peace, but that could work. No, Tom, I don't think you, you understand me. Do you know the story about Peter, Tom? You know he tried to pull out the sword and fight for me, and I said, hey, Peter, put away the sword. Whoever lives by the sword will die by the sword. Tom, you may have heard that we're to love our neighbors or love our nation, but I tell you, love your enemies. If someone strikes you on one cheek, turn to him the other. Jesus, man, you're giving me a hard time here. First you say you bring the sword, and then you say you don't bring the sword. You're kind of a tricky guy. Let's just move on and talk about something different here. How about the people of the country? You know, the people, they need things, and there's a lot of problems, a lot of economic problems. You could bring good to these people. I know you can. You love them. What are you going to do for the people? You know, Obama, he gave them phones. What can you give them? I heard you actually fed 5,000 people. Maybe you could do that, Jesus. Tom, well, yes, it's true. Anyone who comes to me will be given life. I Actually, I am the bread of life. If anyone feeds on me, they'll live. If they drink my blood and they eat my flesh, they'll have true life. <laughs> oh, Jesus. Uh, I don't know if that's going to do good for your ratings, but... Let's keep talking about this. I know you care about the people. You care about the, the poor, and you hang out with them a lot. And uh, obviously, there's some pro problems in our economy. You know, you've you, you got to fix these problems. How are you going to fix the, the, this problem with the economy? How are you going to help people become prosperous and become successful and become rich? You know, we've we got to restore America to the old days, right? Yes, I do love the poor, and actually blessed are the poor, Tom. For theirs is the kingdom, and blessed are you who hunger now, for you will be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. But woe to you who are rich, for you have already received your comfort. Woe to you who are well-fed now, for you will go hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you will mourn and weep. All right, Jesus. You're a bit of a philosophical guy, I can tell here. And uh, I... I, I, I I got to think about that one for a little bit. I thought you might say something like, you know, we'll just take money from the 1% and just give them to the rest of the people. And that might, that would make them all happy. Wouldn't something like that work out? But why do you tell people that the poor are blessed and the rich are not? I don't know, Jesus, how this interview is going, but we'll, I just got two more questions for you. One is about religious tension in our world. You know, we've got a lot of religious tension and we've got a lot of problems. And how are, we, how are you going to bring people together? You know, make them united and include all people. Aren't we all kind of just the same? That's a great question, Tom. My answer for you, Tom, is that actually I am the way. And I am the truth and I am the life. And no one comes to the Father but through me. I don't think that's going to be so great on that inclusivity check mark uh, box, uh, Jesus, but we appreciate your comments. And actually, as I think about it, I think you might have something there. You know, you say you're the way. That's what we need, Jesus. I think you can run with that one, the way. <laughs> the way to make America great again. <laughs> the way to bring prosperity back to our country. The way to restore our schools and our education. The way to establish an economy. Ah, you got it. In truth, that's pretty good. In the life, that's great. You got a great slogan, Jesus. I think you should go with it. Jesus, I'm going to close this here. I just wonder if you had one last thing you'd like to say. You know, I mean, I, I think you've got something here. I think people could probably follow you in that, and, and maybe they could become, what do you call them, disciples? But what do you want to say just as you close this, Jesus?
well, Tom, I've really enjoyed this conversation with you. And uh, I just, I want you to know, if you want to be my disciple, if anyone wants to come to me, they must hate his father and mother, his wife and children, his brother and sister, yes, even his own life. He cannot be my disciple. And anyone who does not carry his cross and follow me, he cannot be my disciple. Well, on those words, we'll close our interview with Jesus. If you want to vote for Jesus, it's a vote for hating your family. <laughs> this is Tom Brokoff, and I'm signing out. Thank you very much. <laughs> Jesus for president. All right. Who's going to vote for him? Nobody. Nobody. Seriously. Seriously. Nobody. Nobody. Give us someone that's going to tell us a bunch of stuff they're going to do for, the, for, the, for, for our country. Give us a bunch of someone that's going to tell us what they're going to do for me. Jesus' kingdom is not the kingdom of this world. It's a different kingdom. And his kingdom challenges the heart of every man and woman. Where is your allegiance? Who is your allegiance to? Who are you living for? What are you living for? We live in a kingdom, America, that is a worldly power. It's a worldly power that establishes itself based on the idea that you can be the king of your life and establish your own kingdom, the American dream. Worldly power and wealth and fame and fortune, you can have it all. You can be your king. But what happens when Jesus comes around? He threatens it all. He threatens every bit of it because he demands our allegiance to him alone. And so we must be careful that we don't become like Herod and we want to get rid of Jesus. There's a part in each one of our hearts that would like to kill Jesus and there's probably a part in each one of our hearts that has killed Jesus. Actually, all in our hearts have hung him on the cross as he died for each one of our sins. There's a part in each one of us that's threatened by Jesus, that doesn't want to listen to Jesus, doesn't want to hear him, because it demands, he demands our life. To go to him, we must give up the world and all of its alluring pleasures and pursue a kingdom that lasts forever. We lose the world, but we gain eternity when we come to Jesus. I was impressed by a man I met last week or two weeks ago. He was a Hindu man. He was a Hindu priest. And one month ago, his wife had been suffering for a long time. And he had been praying to his gods and he had been sacrificing his animals and he had been doing all his things he's supposed to do to bring healing and to please the gods of their village so that his wife would be made better, but she didn't, she didn't recover. And he questioned his gods. But in the middle of that time, a man, the pastor of that village, came and visited that Hindu priest and he said to that priest, I would like to pray for your wife to be healed. And the priest said, if you pray for my wife and Jesus heals my wife, I'll follow him. The man prayed for his wife and that woman got healed that, in that moment. 
She was healed from her illness. And that Hindu priest said, I will leave everything for Jesus. He took, got rid of all of his idols. He told his family that now I've, I'm, I'm a follower of Jesus. His mother and father rejected him and told him that they hate them and they never want to see him again. The rest of his family rejected his family. The villagers won't look at him when he walks by the village. He's lost everything in the world, but he gained Jesus. He gained Jesus. You should have seen his wife and the smile on her face. They lost all, but they gained everything. Let us not forget, Jesus came into the world to give us everything. He lost all on the cross that we may be given all of eternity. He came as a baby. He died on the cross as an innocent sacrifice for our sins. He invites us to come and be a part of his kingdom. That's what he's doing right now. Come and be in my kingdom. There's only two kingdoms. You're in one of the two. They're in conflict with each other. You're in the kingdom of God or you're in the kingdom of this world. The kingdom of God lasts forever. The kingdom of this world ends in death and perishing. One is life and one is death. One is ruled by God. One is ruled by a satanic entity. What part do you want to be? What part of the kingdom, which part of the kingdom do you want to be in? And you may be in God's kingdom, but you are still haven't fully made Jesus your Lord of your life. You haven't yielded your whole life to him. He asks for nothing less than your whole life. Because one day he's going to return, guys. And he's going to set up his kingdom. And it's going to be a glorious kingdom. And he's going to rule over the whole earth, the heavens and the earth. And all will be under his lordship. And he will reign in justice and in love and in goodness. And Daniel tells us, I'm just going to close with this verse. Daniel tells us in Daniel chapter 7 of the worst kingdom that comes at the end time, right? It was a terrible kingdom. But in this, when this kingdom comes, God will end the kingdom and destroy that terrible kingdom of the world, and then this will happen. And we're all waiting for this to happen. And then Daniel says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, and that all peoples and nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is in his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. This is what the end of history is about. Let's worship Jesus together and remember that he's come to create a great kingdom and that we all get to be a part of it if we will submit our lives to him, if we'll put our trust in him, that he died for our sins, that he purchased us out of the kingdom of this world and brought us into his flock and into his kingdom to live with him forever. If we accept it, if we believe that, if we make him the Lord of our lives, we can be brought into his kingdom. And that's for every person. Every person. His kingdom is for the rich, the poor, the men, the women, small, the tall, all people, colors, all races. He's creating a great kingdom. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for you, your life. We thank you, Jesus, for being the Jesus of Nazareth.
Jesus from nowhere, the Messiah from an a nowhere place that came to save nowhere people all over the world. Few are wealthy and rich. Few are powerful and elite. You came not just for them, but for every single person to bring us all out of our own kingdoms into your kingdom. Not to live for ourselves, but to live for you. To deny ourselves that we may find life because in you is life. I pray, Lord, that you bless uh, this church and this whole nation this week. And I pray people would turn to you, God, and remember you as the King, and remember you as the Lord, the King of heaven, the King of earth. And I pray our country would worship you, the one true God, not get caught up in, an, in political things and worldly dominions, but caught up in your dominion, in your kingdom. We pray the love of Jesus would spread out through this country, that the kindness of Jesus and the compassion of Jesus and the gentleness of Jesus and the humility of Jesus would fill your people, fill your people of your kingdom, and that the love of God would be seen in your people, Lord, that we would truly be of another kingdom, we truly would worship another kind of king, and that we would reflect that in our neighborhoods and we would reflect that in our families and we would reflect that in our workplaces. And that would be the power that transforms the country, the power of Christ living through his people. Lord, we pray for awakening and a renewal of the power of Christ in his people here and across the whole world. We thank you, we love you, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As we close here... Um, the ushers will come down and they're going to give um, uh, pass.